I want to say before I begin the lesson that uh, we sometimes only talk about our uh, AV guys when things aren't right. And some of you are going, man, the screen looks a little darker. Be glad we have one. Uh, last week we didn't have one, and basically some of our tech guys have spent a lot of time this week sort of rigging an old one so we at least have something uh, shining up here this week. And we're working on getting a, a new projector and, and uh, have, let's just say, lots of fun. Uh, dealing with that, but we really appreciate the guys who do the AV stuff, the live streaming, and and uh, they have really spent some time the last few days, so we have something uh, to, to look up uh, on as far as the screen goes this week, and now just been going, there's nothing. Well, there's something. So there we go. How do we who have limits, who don't know everything, who can't do everything, how do we possibly describe God? We have a song that sort of puts into words that, that difficulty we have when we sing the words, You are beautiful beyond description. Too marvelous for words. Too wonderful for comprehension. Like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp your infinite wisdom? Who can fathom the depth of your love? You are beautiful beyond description. Majesty enthroned above. We know that song in our books by the first line of the chorus, I stand in awe of you. How do we possibly, not just describe God with our words, how do we possibly even fathom God? How do we do that? The Bible makes it clear that he, He's not us. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19 begins that very simple phrase, God is not a man. And then it goes on to talk about the difference. God is not a man that He should lie, but even that first phrase, God is not a man. You might think of Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, where that prophet talked about the difference. And speaking for God, he, he said, Just as my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways, so my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts, says the Lord Almighty. And some people, when they realize that, they can almost be, if you let me use the terminology, they can almost be turned off by it. That God is so much higher and so much, infinitely higher. Not so much same covered. Infinitely higher, infinitely greater, infinitely more powerful, infinitely more knowledgeable. He is, if you please, so other from us that it becomes almost a turnoff for some. But the Bible gives us, from beginning to end, a lot of phrases, a lot of descriptions, some very picturesque and, po and poetic, some very straightforward, to try to put into our thinking, our language, how we can possibly describe God. And, and because of, excuse me, when He can begin to describe Him, not feel just as if He is other and beyond, but really be drawn near to Him. Because, as that song says, we stand in awe. Of him, Yes, He is other. But we begin to appreciate and we begin to be thankful for who He is. What I want to do with you this morning is look at four times in the New Testament where you have a phrase that begins with the two words, God is. And I want us to see what ends that phrase four times in the New Testament. That each time should give us something, something, that should make us be even more in awe 
of the indescribable God. The one who is too marvelous for words, but the one that we love so very much. First of all, consider the phrase, God is Spirit. And turn your Bibles to the Gospel according to John chapter 4. You might recognize that phrase, that statement, from that conversation that Jesus had with that woman at the well in the region of Samaria. And while you're turning to John chapter 4, let me remind you sort of what's going on before Jesus says that. Because in verses 19 and 20, leading up to this statement, you might recall that Jesus and this woman are having a conversation. They go back and forth. And if you read it carefully, it seems like she, she kind of tries to change the subject a couple of times. Especially when Jesus tries, tries to make the conversation pretty personal. And she does that in verse 19, verses 19 and 20, where she says, Sir, I, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then she gives a religious question. Our fathers, the fathers of the Samaritans, worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, the one there in Samaria. But your fathers, the, the Jews, they worship in Jerusalem. And you, and you see what she's doing, basically, is trying to get this one she perceives as a prophet to, to say, which one's right? The Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. If you please, it was their holy place. I read just a few years ago, I'm not sure if it's still true to this very day, but just a few years ago I read that even to that point in time, there was still a very tiny but dedicated group of people who believed themselves to be Samaritans who went to Mount Gerizim to worship. It was still a thing as of just a few years ago. It may still be even right to now, but I couldn't find it in the last you know, few weeks. But still, it was, it was a thing then for sure. But to this day, some of you have been to Jerusalem. And what they call that place? Oh, the Temple Mount. Right? That's, that's the place where the temple was. And where the Jews, it was the Holy Land. So she's saying, prophet, which one is right? And if you read Jesus' answer, he basically says, I mean, paraphrase, the Jews have this one right. It, it's, it's Jerusalem. But the time is coming when the place isn't going to matter. God seeks certain people to worship Him. And that's when He says in John 4.24, God is Spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit, and in truth. In other words, it's not about the place, Gerizim, Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. It's about the heart of the worshiper. Spirit and truth. But notice how he began that. God is spirit. Is being a, a linking verb. How about that English knowledge? You could turn that statement around and make the statement, and I'm told the original language would do the same thing. Spirit is God. And I say that because notice there's not an A in there. It is not God is a spirit. It is God is spirit. In other words, that is simply His nature. He's not a spirit among many other spirits. He is spirit. So what? Well, that ties back to that statement from Numbers, God is not a man, but it ties back to a whole lot of other things as well. What is important for us to know in realizing that God is spirit? Well, there's a lot of things. Let me give you just a couple. One is to remember that this conversation happens in John chapter 4, and it's in John chapter 1, where the same writer tells us about Jesus who was God, verses 1 and 2, who became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. It adds to the beauty and the power of the fact 
that God, Spirit, the Son of God, became flesh. He crossed that bridge, if you please, from otherness to usness. It's the same thing Paul will talk about in the book of Philippians. That they took on flesh. It's a powerful thing. And it should cause us to be more in awe, not just of Jesus, the one who did take on flesh, the one called the Word, but also of God the Father who would allow that to happen. That that was part of His plan. And so every time you and I read in any of the Gospel accounts about Jesus doing something that has human emotion or human feeling, that's exactly what was going on. He really was hungry. He really was thirsty in John chapter 4. He really did weep in John chapter 11. He really was like us in that way. That bridge had been crossed. And so we can sing words like, My Jesus knows when I'm burning. He knows how much my heart can bear. He understands each lonely heartache. He understands because He cares. But that song is true, but you could also rewrite it even though it wouldn't rhyme. <laughs> to say He understands because He's been one of us. He didn't sin. But other than that, He knows every feeling, every emotion, every, every physical difficulty. He understands. It also matters, though, because it should cause us to be thankful for the fact that we don't know what God looks like. It keeps us from trying to see God as a tree, or God as a star, or God as a mountain, or God as a cloud, or God even as a person. And here's why. If we knew that God, for example, was a star, that's what God looked like, was a star. What would we do? We'd either worship the stars, all of them, because we wouldn't know which one was Him, or we would try to carve or paint or sculpt a star. And most likely, in fact, I would say almost for sure, we would be blasphemous because we never could do it perfectly. And we would lessen our God. It is a blessing to us that we do not know what God looks like. Because then we're not tempted to try to form Him or carve Him or paint Him or sculpt Him. We simply take it upon faith that whatever His form is, if you will, is perfect and infinite because God is Spirit and that's a blessing to us. But tied to that first concept, it is also a blessing to us that God allowed His Son to cross the bridge so that we would know the emotion and the feeling. Between us and Him. He is Spirit. Number two, God also is light. We read this morning from John chapter 1, verse 5. If you notice, 5 through 10, excuse me. If you notice in that reading, it talks about how John was not the light. But look at the same writer in 1 John chapter 1. It's interesting, by the way. You can study John 1 and 1 John 1 and get a really interesting few lessons. But in 1 John chapter 1, the same writer talks about the same concept. After he talks about the fact that we saw Jesus and all these things, he gives a beautiful description in verse 5. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Now, I don't believe that John means by that that God is actually physical light. People in here who have science degrees and things are a lot smarter than me, you know, can talk about the physical properties of light and all that stuff. I have no idea about that stuff. 
I passed science class. I got my degree. I forgot all of it. Okay, I have no idea how that stuff actually works. But John is not trying to tell us that God is actually physical light. But he is trying to say that there are qualities about light that tell us something about God. You see that in the second part of that verse. Not only is God light, but in Him there's no darkness at all. And if you keep reading beyond that in 1 John chapter 1, Excuse me. you're going to see there's even a bigger difference because John goes on to talk about how we sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. His truth is not in us. What's the implication? God doesn't have to worry about that. He's never sinned. So what's John talking about when he talks about the concept of God being light? He is talking about the majestic, perfect holiness of our God. It's why, by the way, when you come to Revelation chapter 4 in your Bible, and starting orbiting in December, we're going to be teaching on Revelation. Yes, I'm scared to death. Um, but when you come to that chapter in your New Testament, and that throne room scene, everything about it has to do with light. Things that give off light, things that reflect light, things that refract light, things like eyes that take in light. Because it's trying to show us about the majestic holiness of God. But you think about the concept of, of God being light, and it helps us to see about His holiness. When you read in your New Testament in Romans 3, verse 23, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of, uh, glory of God, you don't have to read that about God. It's His glory. In that beautiful prayer that Hannah prays in 1 Samuel chapter 2, it's how she begins the prayer. She says in verse 2, There is none holy like the Lord. What a way to start a prayer. Would that I prayed like that more often. God, there is none holy like you. She understood that in the Old Testament. I need to understand that even more now, having seen the full picture of what God has done for mankind. You think about another uh, prophet, uh, Habakkuk, in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13, when he said, You, speaking to God, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. What a powerful thought. We sometimes sing that song that talks about the Father turns his face away when Jesus was on the cross. And there's no verse in the New Testament that tells us that's why it was dark. We, we kind of get that picture, though. Because Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the way, study that sometime. Leading up to that on the cross, of all the times where someone forsook Jesus, forsook Jesus, forsook Jesus, forsook Jesus, and now on the cross, He's saying, God, why are you doing this? Why have you forsaken me? And some suggest it's because Jesus took all the sins of all humanity for all time upon Himself, and they bring in Habakkuk 1 and verse 13, that God can't look at evil, and there all of it is. It's all on Jesus. Whether that's actually the case or not, it's a powerful picture of, of this idea of the absolute holiness of God. He is light. I, I can't for a moment imagine what it's like to never make a mistake. But when I read in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, and the New Testament book of 1 Peter, I see that's the challenge from God Himself. Be holy, for I am holy. God 
for, for whatever the tiniest fraction of a second is. I don't know what the, the smallest number is. I don't know whatever, whatever it is. For not the tiniest fraction of a second has God ever not been holy. He has been holy through and through forever and ever. And the challenge for you and I is to strive to live that way. And we're going to fail. But the fact is, we have the standard. In Him is light. He is light. Number three, in the same book of the Bible, 1 John, you have the beautiful one we like to sing about. God is love. In fact, it's found twice in the same chapter of 1 John. 1 John 4 and verse 8 is probably the one we know better because we sing it in the greatest commands. Beginning of verse 7 of 1 John 4, John said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves is born of God and knows God. Here's verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's what we know better probably. But look in the very same chapter at verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. These two statements may seem to be very, very similar, but I want you to listen very carefully to a subtle difference in them. Sometimes we say things like this, all that God does flows from love. Now that's true, but I want you to hear the subtle difference in that and this statement. All that God does is love. Do you hear the subtle difference in those two things? Now, both of them are true. I'm not saying one's false and one's, you know, one's wrong and one's right. But the second one is absolutely hard for us to fathom. That everything God does doesn't just flow from love. It is love. Because just as it is true that the nature of God is spirit, it is also true that the nature of God is Love. It's just who He is. I can't fathom that. I can't fathom something where, where love is absolutely perfect through and through. We, we talk about love all the time. and We, we, we have these concepts of love and, and we know what, what good love is. Right? We, we have these relationships. You know, a mother's love for their child. A husband's love for his wife. And, you know, we have these loves that are there, and we know what it's supposed to be like, but we also know that even in those wonderful types of love, there's still failure. That, that mother who loves her child is still going to do something wrong at some point. That husband who loves his wife is still going to make, make some mistake at some point. Not me, but you know, it's still going to make a mistake at some point. Some point. But not God. Whether He is rewarding or punishing, whether He is blessing or cursing, it is always an act of love. I can't fathom that. That it's always right. And it also reminds us that God's love acts, but He will not love us into heaven. John 3, verse 16, we, we love the verse. Literally, for God loved the world in this way, that He gave. That He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Notice the verse tells us of the love of God, that agape love, that love that always seeks the best for the other person. And that love is absolutely perfect and acts. In fact, it did the greatest act that has ever been done and could ever be done in the history of the world. But God will not, quote-unquote, love us into heaven. I still have to respond to, believe in, what was done through the love of God. We mentioned this verse, I believe it was last week. But you think also Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Sometimes we, we talk about the grace of God and the love of God synonymously, and they're close, but that grace flows from His love. And yes, by His grace we are saved, but that same verse says, through faith. I have to respond to it. There is a part that I play in my own salvation. But here's the thing, why would I not want to respond to it when I'm responding to one who has perfect love? That everything done is a perfect act of love. That's the one that we serve. Love that old song. And the language is a little bit outdated, but what a picture. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. I sing that song sometimes. For one thing, I think, I wish I could write like that. But I also sing that song sometimes and think, even that's not close. Because that's how perfect the love of God is. Now I want to confess something to you. I got this idea for a sermon from a list I saw one time. I was reading a book. And so, hey, here's the New Testament statements of, of God is. Like, hey, there's a sermon. It's got three points, right? And I thought, wait a second. It even had God is light. I use a different translation, but you know, God is spirit, God is light, God is love. Hey, there you go. Three points. All I got is that a poem, and I got a sermon, right? Then I thought, wait a second. There's another New Testament statement that begins with God is. Our God is a consuming fire. And somebody says, that doesn't make any sense. You just spent the last five or six minutes telling us how wonderful the love of God is. And, and how we couldn't even talk about it enough. And here's the thing, I haven't stopped talking about it. Just because we change the, the wording, remember, all that God does is love. And so in Hebrews chapter 12, at the end of that chapter, you have this statement given. Beginning of verse 28, the Hebrews writer says this of Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore let us be grateful for a kingdom, for receiving a kingdom, excuse me, that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for... Our God is a consuming fire. How does that work? Well, let me tell you one thing about how it doesn't work. We sometimes talk about these attributes of God. For, for these two, for example, His love and His wrath are consuming nature. And we talk about how I could never hold those in balance. I could not be perfectly balanced between loving and being wrathful and those sorts of things. And I get why we talk that way. I get why I talk that way. 
Folks, God's not trying to hold things in balance. Both of these statements are true of His nature through and through. It's a mind-boggling concept, but God is not trying to hold these things in balance. Both of them are who He is through and through. He is a consuming fire. It talks about the fact that His love is perfect, and perfect love is also perfectly just. If God did anything, anything that was unjust, we could turn right around and say, not only He's not a consuming fire, but also He is not love. Because perfect love demands perfect justice to be perfect love. But you also think about where the Hebrews writer drew this phrase from, our God is a consuming fire. It's found in your Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 24 where the law is being given specifically about idolatry being very, very carefully condemned as a sin. And why? Well, because if I can use the terminology, God didn't want any competition. But He doesn't have any, but He didn't want people trying to give Him competition. Why? Because He's a consuming fire. You don't want to try to compete with God. And you for sure don't want to try to make something to compete with God. That's just not the way this works. It reminds us of what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Depending on the translation you have, your Bible would just say, Behold the goodness or behold the kindness and the severity of God. Now, which one of those is true? Both of them are. Both of them are. And both of them are perfectly held by God. They are just part of His nature. And so it's not any kind of difficulty for us to say God is love and then turn right around and say God is consuming fire because they are both parts of His nature through and through from beginning to end. One really demands the other to be true perfectly all the way through. And by the way, by putting this phrase in both the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 4.24, and the New Testament, Hebrews 12.29, it also reminds us that the nature of God is completely unchanging. Sometimes people like to say, you know, when I read through the Old Testament, I'm reading about a God of wrath. But then somehow, magically, when I turn that blank page and get to Matthew and start reading about God, I'm reading about a God of love. You know who you're reading about in both the Old Testament and the New Testament? God. That's who you're reading about. He didn't change. We might read more about His wrath in the Old Testament. And we, we might read more about His love in the New Testament. I'm not really sure that's true, but we might. Or we might sense it more, one, one or the other, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But God didn't change. He simply is all the way through for all eternity. Are there other things we could ponder about God? Of course there are. We haven't really talked about His eternal nature. We haven't talked really about His mercy. We mentioned His grace. We didn't really talk about that much. There's all kinds of attributes that we could think about that help us to have some concept of God. But think about these four. God is Spirit. And that's a blessing because we will not try to bring Him down to our level. God is light, which reminds us of the perfect level to which we strive to attain. 
God is love, which reminds us that He bridges the gap between our level and His level. And God is a consuming fire, which warns us if we don't respond to the love that He's shown to us. He is too marvelous for words. But isn't it a blessing to try? Because He is worthy of all of our praise, all of our heart's desire, and every action we could try to please Him. Do you love Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength? Have you responded to that greatest love ever shown? When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and then that flesh died on the cross. But it didn't stay there. It overcame to give us hope. He's told us out of His love how to respond to that. We believe that His Son really is our Savior. We repent of those things that separate us from God. We confess that Jesus really is Lord and Savior. We're immersed in water, baptized for the forgiveness of those sins. That's where we come in contact with what happened at the cross. If you've never done that, why would you wait even a moment? But if you have and something is wrong, something has caused a rift between you and God, something has led you to, to walk away, something has just got you confused or discouraged, you can come back because that's how much love He has. He'll welcome you back if you'll come with a penitent heart. Whatever you need is when you come. Always stand and sing to encourage you. Yeah. <laughs>